Isn't that incredible? Give them a great hand. We're proud of you guys. And I hope that all of you who got moved by that and you say, that's an area I need peace in my life. This is something we want for you. And just God has provided uh, an incredible team of people of which the Youngs are a part. I want you to meet them. Fill out that response card and sign up for information. We'll make sure you get it. And uh, this, this next fall, you're going to go, if you do this, you're going to go into 2014, a completely uh, changed person. So this is what we want for you as well. Now, if you'd open up your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 10, today is the last day of this series, 40 Days in the Word. And why 40 days? Well, in the Bible, 40 days was a significant period of time that God used to help people transform their lives for the rest of their lives. And so this isn't about 40 days. This is about you for the rest of your life forever. This is, there's no end date to this series because we're hoping that you've picked up some habits that you'll start to put in practice that will transform you and change you for the rest of your life. And in fact, I want to put up on the screen sort of a little phrase that was the guiding, uh, the guiding pathway for this entire series for us here at Heartland Church. This is what, what we learned, that we're not just trying to get more information about the Bible or learn some historical facts, but we really want to meet God and to know Him and to, to, to have a relationship with Him. And that if we'd start off by looking to God, worshiping Him, looking to Him and listening to Him and approach Him as, God, speak to me, talk to me, God, I worship you, that will turn on the light. That's illumination, which will allow you to learn the meaning of His Word and then be able to apply it to every area of your life, application. So because it's worship that turns on the light of illumination, I want to spend our last uh, uh, message in this series talking about worship and what it is. So uh, if you find that passage in 1 Kings, I'm going to read a story from there in just a minute. Let's just pray together. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take my words and take my body, my mind, my soul, and Lord, you use me for your purposes today. I pray that you'd help me to communicate as I should. I open my heart to you. And in fact, we all do that today. We want to hear your voice and have you change our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I told you I heard a conversation recently where somebody said, yeah, I just go to church, you know, for the message. I, I, I tend to miss all that stuff in the beginning. And as if, as if the, the music is sort of the warm-up and then the, the message is the main course, and I'm concerned that still yet many of us don't understand the purpose of what it is that we actually do and how we prepare ourselves and how we meet God and what the purpose of our whole worship service actually is. Actually, that's what it's called, worship service, which means it's our service or our gift to God. In fact, let me give you a, a, a definition of, of what, what's really going on. God is actually the audience here today, not you uh, he is the audience of our worship. The people on the platform are the, are the leaders or the ones who help us focus on God. And in fact, that's what I'm doing, helping you to focus on God. But ultimately, we are supposed to participate together. In fact, that's what you and I were created to do, uh, worship God. Now, if that's what I'm made to do, what is worship? Here is the simplest definition of worship that I know. Worship is expressing your love to God. And nobody else can do that for you. Worship is expressing love to God. And, and I want to note the verb there. It's 
It has to be expressed. Love must be expressed for it to mean anything, for it to have any worth. I mean, can you imagine uh, me telling my wife, you know I love you, and if it changes, I'll let you know. <laughs> like, we're not going to talk about it anymore. Just trust me, but, you know, I'm not expressing it anymore. Would it be okay if your spouse never expressed their love to you? No. Can you so are we the bride of Christ? How does Christ feel if, if, if we as his bride do not express our love to him? Well, one of the things about expressing love to someone, it works better, and actually the goal of love would be to find out how does that person uh, respond and how do they wish to receive love and then give them what they would want to receive? And so how does God want to be worshipped? How does God expect to be worshipped? What is, what is his desire? If, we, if he created us to worship him, do you actually know how God wants you uh, to worship him? And to have this conversation, we need to clarify a distinction between dogma and doctrine. And you might not even know those words, but let me define what they mean. Doctrine is established truth in God's word. Dogma is the established tradition of man. So everybody in this room has a dogma because we all come from all these different church backgrounds and different uh, denominations and different cultures. In fact, if you haven't even been in church for a long time, you have a formed opinion, you know, because that's what dogma is, formed opinion over time of what worship actually is. And yet doctrine is what God says in his word. And here's the problem. Over time, what happens is, is we, I find that we substitute what God's word has to say, and we give in to the dogma of our tradition or to the family of our origin or the culture in which we were raised, and we don't even think about it. In fact, we tend to think worship, well, you have an opinion about worship here today. In fact, as I begin to talk about this, some of you are excited and some of you are like, is he going to try to make me do something that I don't want to do? <laughs> Did somebody just clap for that? So I'm not going to make you do anything that you weren't made to do already. How about that, okay? Now, let me tell you this story in 1 Kings chapter 10 because this is the problem when we substitute uh, man's tradition for God's doctrine. Solomon built the temple of God, the first temple where the glory of God was revealed and people couldn't even stand up to worship. I mean, it was an amazing, amazing facility, an amazing uh, edifice to the glory of God. It was this one of the wonders of the world. It was, it was like no other. And Solomon built it and spared no expense and gave generously. And people understand about that, but I don't know if you know what he actually did. There's a little detail in 1 Kings chapter 10 of something that he added to the temple after it was finished uh, specifically for the worship of God. Take a look at this in verse 16 where he says, And Solomon uh, made 200 large shields of hammered gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. That's about 15 pounds of gold in each shield. He also made 300 shields of hammered gold, which were about three minas or four pounds of gold went into each shield. All right? So yesterday I went online to discover what is the value of gold today per ounce. Okay? I went in, I just did some math and did some research and figured out what is 15 pounds of gold worth today and what's four pounds of gold worth today. Do you know that those large shields, one of them today, would be the equivalent of $287,000. The small shields, four pounds, would be 
$5,000. That means that, that Solomon had wrapped up $80 million of his currency in the creation of these shields. He created them not for war. He created them for worship. He created them to reflect the glory of God. He created them to magnify uh, God. And you can, you can imagine the brilliance and the radiance and the magnification of God that these shields added to the worship. So it was fantastic. But, you know, over his life, Solomon began to stray from the Lord. In fact, he closed off his heart to God and began to chase after other gods that his wives introduced him to. And he followed his many wives into idolatry. And, and Solomon died a frustrated man. In the end of his life, he said, you know, everything's meaningless and nothing really matters. And, and when he died, his son Rehoboam succeeded him, and that was a terrible idea. He, he was a horrible man. In fact, he was spoiled, and he was, he was selfish, and he had no idea how to lead a government. And in five years, he totally made a mess of everything. The scripture says that in five years, they had sinned more in Rehoboam's generation than all the other generations before. And as he went down... The country fell apart. There was a civil war. The country split apart. People wouldn't follow this guy. And uh, God had had enough, and he sent his judgment upon Rehoboam. So in 1 Kings chapter 14, we find out the judgment that God sent on Rehoboam for his wickedness and on the nation of Israel that followed him. Verse four, uh, chapter 14, it happened in the fifth year of King Rehoboam's reign that Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. So you know, Egypt is always this type of, you know, representing sin in the Bible. And, and here, comes, here comes this King Shishak to bring God's judgment upon Jerusalem. Now, you've heard this name before. Are you guys into Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark? And Harrison Ford says, Shishak of Egypt came up and stole the ark out of the temple. That's where you've heard his name. And, and we don't know if he took the ark or not, but that's the premise of the movie, that he, he stole the ark of the covenant back to Egypt. Now, we don't know if he did that or not, but the Bible tells us that it actually occurred, and it tells us what he did steal. He stole, it says in verse uh, 26, Shishak took away the treasures of the house of the Lord, so that's where they get the premise of the movie, the treasures of the king's house, and he took away everything. He also took away all the gold shields that Solomon had made. Now, whether he got the ark or not, he made off with $80 million in gold shields. So what happened after that? He took everything away. King Rehoboam made bronze shields in their place and committed them into the hands of the captain of the guard who guarded the doorway of the king's house. Whenever the king entered the house of the Lord, the guards carried the shields, brought them in, and then he would bring them back. Okay, so, so here's the picture. You're created to worship. The enemy has come in and stolen what was created for worship, stolen something away and replaced it with a cheap substitute, an imitation of the real thing. Here you are today, here we are today, and the enemy has stolen away authentic praise and worship out of, out of the church and replaced it with a cheap imitation, a tarnished, duller substitute where just a few people perform and everybody else watches. A few people just, uh, in fact, if you, if, you, if you realize, this was kind of a prophecy of church history that some would come along and lock up and say only a certain people can even have access to God, all right? And that's what happened for, for centuries, and even today, we've still not recovered from the fact that the enemy has come in and stolen away praise. Does not the scripture say that the enemy has come, the thief has come to steal? Steal what? Worship from God. Satan was in heaven. 
And he was the chief worship leader of all heaven, giving glory to God, and he stole from God what belonged to him. And he wants to steal from you, and he's stolen from the church. And there's a cheap imitation of the real thing. I don't think we know how to really worship. In fact, there's so much tradition and so much dogma. So I I wanted to get to the Bible. I want to know, how does God want to be worshipped? Don't you want to know that? What does the Bible say? And I'm going to ask you to suspend some of your formed opinion and your dogma about what you think worship really should be. And just let's just let the scripture speak to us. How does God want to be worshipped? So write these down. There's six biblical expressions of worship that, that are just coming out of the scripture. Okay? So the first one is clapping of hands. Now, in our culture, the clapping of hands just means applause. Like, you guys did a good job. Great. But it means so much more than that in the scripture. In in the scriptures, clapping of hands means uh, joy to the Lord and victory over the enemy. We are clapping because we are joyful in the Lord's presence, and we are clapping because of his victory over the enemy. Can I just share a few scriptures uh, maybe you've never seen before? In Job chapter 27, uh, verse 23, men shall clap their hands at him and shall hiss the wicked man out of his place. So the people are, are applauding because an evil man who was in power has been removed and they are no longer under his authority. So people are clapping. Here's Nahum chapter 3, verse 19. There is no healing for your wound. No, your injury is fatal. All who hear of your destruction will clap your hand, their hands for joy. This is a prophecy about the king of Assyria, the great enemy of Israel, and the Lord is saying, I'm going to bring him down, and people are going to clap at his destruction. It's also a prophecy of Satan and his ultimate demise. It's, a, it's not just the king of Assyria, but it's a type of that one day Satan will be completely dis- be destroyed by the Lord. And so the people are saying, God, we praise you because you, have, you are victorious. You have overcome the enemy. You have won. And so when we gather to praise, we clap our hands not just because the music's good. We're clapping, God, you have overcome. God, you are victorious. God, we celebrate with great joy for who you are and what you've done. Uh, Psalm 98, let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together before the Lord. Isaiah 55, verse 12, you shall go out with joy and be led out with peace, which is really a worship service right there. And the mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you. The trees of the field will clap their hands. That's just, that's just saying everywhere the people will clap their hands in great joy. Maybe, maybe that's why uh, Psalm 47 verse 1 says, Oh, clap your hands, all you peoples, and shout to God with a voice of triumph. That shout is, is that we are expressing our joy and we're clapping to say, God, you are victorious over the enemy. And that's the second expression of worship which is so culturally foreign to so many of us, which is a shout of joy or a shout of praise. That's the second one. Shouting. Darren, I don't shout. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> Your wife told me. No, I'm kidding. Uh, you, you shout, but you just haven't associated it as a biblical expression of worship, like, like a cheer, a, a, a yay God, a declaration of God. We, we, we exclaim that you are great and you are holy. The Bible says, clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with a voice of triumph, voice of victory. 
Now, in the world, the, the chief substitute is that we only do that when we see something, and then we respond to it. So they, they're going to do that today and cross the, the goal with the, with the football, and we're going to cheer, and people will shout, and yeah, and they'll do that. But that's the world's kind of cheering, which is just a response or a reaction to something that they see. But biblical shouting is saying, God, I'm going to shout to you before I see. God, I'll praise you in advance. I will exclaim the glory of God even before I see. What's going on? Look at this, Galatians chapter 4, verse 27. Rejoice, O barren woman, you who do not bear children. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. Here's what that means. Worship's always an act of faith. You don't see it yet, but you're going to thank God in advance, and you're going to praise him for who he is, knowing that he's going to do good. Culturally, we shout, we want to say, God, do something, and then I'll praise you for it. See, that's what's wrong with most of our dogma, see, our formed opinion. God, you do something for me, and then I'll say thank you. But you're supposed to offer your thanksgiving first. You're supposed to give first. In fact, everything's by faith, right? We pray by faith. We give by faith. We serve by faith. We, we worship by faith. Jericho came down because the people shouted first, and then the walls came down. So I just want to give you five reasons, the top five reasons why you ought to worship God even when you don't feel like it, which today might be a good day. I don't know. But do the drum roll in your own mind, and here are the top five. Number five, here's why you ought to worship even when you don't feel like it. Number one, worship is an act of faith, okay? So whether you feel like it or not, the whole Christian life is faith. You can't, you can't do anything without faith. So you pray by faith, you sing by faith, you serve, you give. Everything's by faith, so worship is just something you have to do by faith. Number four Feelings shouldn't dictate my actions. Principles should. If you let feelings dictate your life, you will be rudderless, like a little cork on the sea, bopping around. You've got to have some principles, and there's a point in your life, in your maturity, where you say, I'm going to pray even though I don't feel like it. And I'm going to give even if I don't feel like it. I'm going to tithe because it's the right thing to do. And I'm going to sing. I'm going to worship God because it's the right thing to do. Those are my principles. Number three... I, I do it because it's a command of God. Sing to the Lord. Shout to the Lord. Clap your hands. These are imperative commands, and God's saying, praise, give your thanks. And so I do it because whether I feel like it or not, God is scheduled on Sunday morning, and anytime I meet with him to receive my praise. Oh, that was good. You, that was, this is good. This is a good sermon. <laughs> God is scheduled to receive it, so are you going to give it? Just a choice. Number two, I love this one. I, I give praise to God because it's really who I am. Now, some of you think, I don't feel like it today, and if I was to go in there and sing and praise God, I would be faking it. And I don't want to be a hypocrite because I don't really feel it today, so I'm just not going to do it today. <laughs> Let me tell you something. A hypocrite is somebody who acts differently than who they are. Would you agree? Well, okay, when you come in here and you don't worship the Lord as a believer, you're a hypocrite <laughs> because you are a believer. And as a believer, that's what you do. Believers worship the Lord. We, we, are, we are followers of Christ, and so that's who we really are. We may not feel like it at the moment, but who we really are is a worshiper, and so we ought to worship. That was good right there. <laughs> Let me give you the last number one reason why you ought to worship the Lord when you don't feel like it. God is worthy. That's it. That's the only reason. <laughs> that's the reason why you ought to worship him. Okay, let me give you another biblical expression of worship because clapping of hands is not tradition. 
shouting is not charismatic or Pentecostal or whatever dogma you want to attach to it. This is a just biblical doctrine. Somebody say amen on that one. You know I'm telling the truth. All right. Number three, singing. And that's not just for the people who occupy the stage. They can sing. They can sing. Some of you, <laughs> they can sing. But it's not, it's not, uh, it's not that you're not supposed to sing. I mean, we are all supposed to sing. Look what it says, Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving, and let us shout joyfully to him with songs. It's something, there's that shouting again, kind of like singing and exclaiming and exalting God, okay? For the Lord is great. He is the great God, the great king above all gods. One chapter over, Psalm 96, verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord. Sing a new song to the Lord. Sing all the earth. I mean, sing. It doesn't say anything about the quality of your voice. And if we're all singing, it's not going to matter. So sing. <laughs> sing. Here's one you maybe never have seen. I love this. Numbers chapter 21. Look at this verse. From there, this is Moses leading the children of Israel. From there, they went to Be'er. Let me just clarify the pronunciation. <laughs> From there, they went to Be'er, which is the well where the Lord said to Moses, Gather the people together, and I will give them water. And then Israel sang this song, Spring up, O well, all of you sing to it. There's a dry well, and God says to the people, you sing, and the spring is going to bubble up. A minute ago, we talked about a barren woman that didn't have children. Sing before you have the child. Sing before the well springs up. What area in your life is barren and dry that you ought to sing over? I mean, that you ought to praise God for. Like, are you waiting for God to do something and living life in depression until he does something for you? You see, you need to come out of that and say, God, I will sing to you in advance. This is all the way through Scripture. That, and this will cure depression, by the way. Yes, it, it will. And I've got some witnesses in the house on that, that if you will sing to the Lord in advance, God will take places in your life that are dry and cause them to spring up. Now, this is all the way through the Bible. Even on the cross, they were saying to Jesus, come down and then we'll believe. And Jesus was saying, no, believe and then you'll see. Right? In 1 Chronicles chapter 20, there's this incredible story where Israel comes under attack by three nations at the same time. It's a converging coalition, and their, their mission is to wipe out uh, Israel. And King Jehoshaphat starts to pray and call in the name of the Lord, God, what do we do? And God speaks. You know what he says? He says, put the worshipers out front of the army. Put the singers out in front. Now, I don't know what the singers thought of that strategy, <laughs> but... They put, they put the singers out in the front. They obeyed the Lord, and the singers started to worship the Lord. And they started to praise, and they marched out ahead. And you know what God did? When they began to sing, God sent a spirit of confusion into the camp of the enemy. And those nations started to fight each other. And by the time Israel got there, they were all destroyed. And Israel walked in and picked up all the gold and the silver and the spoils and the weapons. And they had the victory because they praised in advance, and God gave them the victory. God will bring a spirit of confusion to the enemy and deliver you when you praise. Praise the Lord. Now, a lot of you are saying, like, okay, shouting, clapping, 
Now you want me to sing? Okay, I don't want to be, de- be forced to do something that I'm not. Listen, I'm not trying to, ma- again, I'm not trying to make you be something that you're not, but I'm telling you, it does not hold water with me that you are not an expressive person. <laughs> because I've, I've seen some of the least expressive of you, like at this football game today. And people are going to be, you're going to, you're going to like shout and you're going to clap your hands and you're going to put your arm, you're going to hug, you're going to hug total stranger. I've seen some of you do this. And yet I just can't express my worship to the Lord. You know what God's greatest desire is? Is that he made you to express your love to him. That's his greatest desire. And you would say, you know, come on, get off me. I just want to worship God in my heart. That should be good enough. Well, listen, you're at least three parts. Your body, soul, and spirit. That's your heart. That's your spirit. So why don't you want to worship him with all of you? He says, worship the Lord. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind. Worship him. And so he deserves all of you. So that's what I'm just saying. I know you may not be as expressive as somebody else, but this isn't a comparison test. This is about you giving your worship and expressing it to God. So let's talk about a fourth expression of worship, which is bowing and kneeling. Picture this, actually bowing and kneeling before the Lord. Psalm 95 says this, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. He made me. Worship is, is acknowledging authority. And, and, you know, submission to God. It's, it's God, you are, you are God and I am not. And it says, come, let's worship and bow down. Let's kneel before him. You know, that's what they did when he arrived. God sent these Gentile scholars from halfway around the world called wise men. And they came to the house where the toddler Jesus lived and Mary and his mother. And when they found him, it says they fell down and they worshiped him. Now, educated men, wealthy men, um, leaders, scholars, very intellectual men came and fell down before Jesus. Was that an appropriate thing to do? Yes, because he was the sa- they recognized this is the savior of the world. So would it be appropriate for me if I just, if for me to bow down before my Savior? Yes. You see, it's just, there's nothing wrong with this. I'm telling you, worship has been stolen away from us. Some of us couldn't even imagine. But what would be more natural than to bow down and bend a knee? The scriptures say that willingly or unwillingly, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we bow down. Listen, Satan's greatest desire is to stop you from bowing down to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He wants to stop you. In fact, he will, his whole goal is to steal the worship that belongs to God. So he will have you chase after everything and bow down to money and bow down to power and bow down to sex and bow down to every other thing. And see, he's come to steal away true worship of your life. And if you don't worship those things, then he will try to kill and destroy you. In fact, he wants worship so much that when Jesus actually showed up, notice the parallel. Jesus shows up on the earth, the wise men come and fall down before him. Satan tempts Jesus and says, listen, I'll stop fighting you and I'll give it to you if you will, look at this, fall down 
Now, he's smart enough to know that if this worship's going to be real, don't just say it's in your heart. Worship is expressed. Bow down before me. That's Satan's greatest desire, and he wants to rip you off. And I'm telling you, we don't bow nearly enough. Let me give you another expression of worship, and some of you were hoping maybe I'd skip this one. But I'm going to say it anyway. It's the lifting of our hands. Come on, all you white people. <laughs> the lifting of our hands. The lifting of our hands. Now, I asked the people this week, what does that mean? And they said, well, probably like surrender. You know, you raise your hands like someone puts a gun to you and you put your hands up. And Listen, what's funny about that is it would take a gun to some of your heads to make you lift your hands. <laughs> I know this about you. But listen, even it, uh, surrender is not the biblical definition of raising of hands. That's not the representation in the scripture, just so you know. But even if it was, what's wrong with, with surrendering our, to, to, our, to our God? What would be wrong with lifting our hands and surrender? God, I surrender to you. But that's not what it means in the Bible. The, the biblical definition of raising of our hands, you know what it is? It's It's blessing. It's the one to whom you raise your hands towards is the one that you bless. That's why the scriptures say in Psalm 63, it says, Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you, and thus will I bless you. I will lift up my hands in your name. Notice how he says how he's going to bless God. You know, I will lift up my hands in your name. When you lift your hands, you actually bless God. Now, Jesus did this in Luke 24. We see him leading uh, them afar out as Bethany. These are his disciples. And then he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. Now, if Jesus will lift up his hands and bless you, you can lift your hands up and bless God. And Psalm 134, verse 2, I love, it's just so clear. Look at this. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. Now, what did that just say? Can we just read that together? Would you like to read this with me? Because I think it's lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. So let's bless the Lord. Come on, let's bless the Lord. You guys can do that. See, I'm disappointed the wave didn't start in church. I think, I think it could have happened, but we were all too, you know, repressed. It just says it. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. All I'm doing today is you may say, wow, this stretches me, Darren. I'm just saying you, you don't, you've been abnormal so long, you don't even know what normal is. Because the enemy has robbed worship and replaced it with a cheap substitute, a performance-based, I'm just going to watch. And you miss out. Let me give you um, another thought on this. How many of you have grandchildren? Or you have children, okay? A lot of you, all right? Well, I think the greatest day of my life was when my, I, I remember when my kids just got big enough. My son, Nick, I couldn't wait for him to get old enough that I could play with him. And then he grew up so fast, and now, now he's in college. But, but when he was a little guy, and he would raise these little fat, little chubby hands up in the air, and he would come running towards me, and he would yell, Daddy, 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 which, of course, is the first word he ever learned. And... Um, <laughs> He would come running towards me and, and lifting up those little hands, and it would just move. My, you know, what is my response supposed to be to those little hands coming towards me? 
get your hands down, you little charismatic. <laughs> now, right? Some of you, that's the attitude when you see somebody worshiping the Lord. Now, you know what my response was? Was, oh, and I just wanted to pick him up in my arms. I'd be lucky to do that today. My daughters are in their teenage years, and they may let me do that once in a while, but there is nothing, there was nothing more precious than little hands being lifted up. And you know what I'm talking about. Don't you think God loves it when we come before him as his children and we lift up our hands to him? And let me talk to you men for just a minute. Men, the most important thing that you could ever do for your children or for your grandchildren is for them to see you lift up holy hands to God and you express your love to your heavenly father. There's something so strong about being vulnerable enough to just lift up open hands. Maybe even to put a, let a tear come in your eye and just say, thank you that you are my God. And your kids watch that, and they have an, they have an example of a man who worships his heavenly father. Because most kids think it's kind of a woman thing, just, you know. But here's a man that's unashamed, and there's something it does for your heart anyway, because the, you know, you can't hold your hands up open-handed for very long and defensiveness start to just go away. And, um, and, and, and contention. That's why Paul would say, my desire is that men everywhere would come into the sanctuary of God and lift up holy hands and worship without anger and controversy. So the lifting of our hands, I think, I think it's just such a beautiful act of worship. It's not demonstrative. I mean, just, Lord, I love you. So let me give you the last one, and this is the controversial one you were waiting for. Dancing, Dancing that's right. <laughs> Dancing. Now, some of my Latino brothers and sisters, they don't even think it's church unless there's dancing. And so they're kind of disappointed with all the rest of you guys that you have never gotten with it yet, right, Moises? But, but let me tell you something. I'm not talking about making a spectacle. The last thing you would want to see is me dance. I just promise you. Not that coordinated, but I believe I will dance in heaven one day, and, uh, and it, I, I'm excited about it. Maybe I'll practice once or twice here. But the scriptures say in Psalm 149, praise him with the dance. Or Psalm 150, let's, let's read this most powerful, famous of all of the Psalms, Psalm 150. Listen to this. Read the words on the screen. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty firmament. Praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise him with the lute and the harp. And praise him with the timbrel and the dance. And praise him with stringed instruments and flutes. And praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Because he's worthy of it. Now, I know we have a hard time with this, and when Jesus showed up, they had a hard time with it too. Listen to his words in Luke 7. And the Lord said, to what shall I liken this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance, and we mourn to you, and you did not weep. 
Now, what does that mean to the people who first heard it? Remember about what's the context? So what did it mean to those first people who heard it? Jesus is speaking to the Jewish people saying, guys, you're missing your day of visitation. You're missing the day that, I mean, he said another time, I wanted to gather you together, but you wouldn't listen. Uh, you're missing the day of God's visitation to you. you. You didn't celebrate and dance when I was born. We had to send um, Gentiles from halfway around the world. You didn't celebrate my birth, and you're certainly not going to mourn my death. You're missing your day of visitation. That's what he's saying. So what's that mean for us? Well, it means we're missing our day of visitations too because David said this, while I'm alive, I will bless the Lord, and your day of visitation is while you're alive. And the scripture says where two or three of us are gathered in his name, he is there in the midst of us. And But we won't worship, and we won't express our love to God, and we won't dance, or we won't clap, or we won't sing. And we're missing the day that God has come to visit us. What if he came to bless you, but you just wouldn't bless him? So I'm going to close with this. There was a, a worship leader in New Zealand. And she writes about in 2002 when the queen came to New Zealand. And what a big deal that was. Because like herself, like all the other people, were so excited because they're crazy about the queen and the royal family. And she had a picture of the queen in her house growing up. And the queen was coming to New Zealand. So when the day came, she got up early and went downtown onto the parade route to, to see the queen. And when she got there, it was so disappointing that there were thousands of people already there ahead of her. And she was short, and she couldn't see over the crowd, so she climbed up in a sycamore tree because the, no, that's a different story. <laughs> but, but what she was looking for, what she was looking for was something to get up on top of so that she could see. And she went searching, and it took her about half an hour, and then she found this, these big trash dumpsters, overflowing trash dumpsters. Well, you know what she did? She climbs up onto the top of the trash dumpsters. And then, you know, she's looking over the crowd, and when the queen drove by, she said this. She said, I began to clap, and I began to shout, and I whistled, and I waved my arms, and the queen drove right on by. And she said, you know what happened? Not one person uh, turned around and looked at me and went, what are you doing? Not one person turned around and said, why are you being so foolish? You know why? Because everybody was looking at the queen. And some of us, when we're in worship, we start looking around at other people, and our eyes ought to be on the king. And some of you need to get over feeling self-conscious and worried about what other people think in worship, and need to have your eyes on the king. What are you going to do when the king comes by? I want to worship him. I don't want the enemy to steal away what is rightfully mine to do. Nobody can praise God for you but you.